that, that's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Well, it's been one of those weekends where we kind of need four hours to talk about everything that's happened. But we're going to do our best to fit it all into one. So on Friday night, there was a much-anticipated round of retaliatory airstrikes against Iranian-backed militias. The U.S. also says there are more on the way. At a time like this, there is literally no one better to talk to than National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. And he's going to join me in just a few minutes. There was also a big development this week in Jack Smith's election interference case as it slid off the March calendar, in large part because we still don't have a decision on Trump's claim of presidential immunity. Should we be freaking out? Should we not be freaking out? Everyone's favorite law firm of Weissman and Katyal is going to tell us how we should be feeling. And later this hour, we're going to dig into the absolutely shocking level of hypocrisy from Republicans in the House this week. Congressman Dan Goldman has certainly not held back in calling it out, and I'm looking forward to breaking it all down with him. And later, President Biden won big in South Carolina last night. And we're also hearing a lot about how he's describing Trump behind closed doors. Having worked for him for a while, I wasn't exactly shocked. But let's just say my mom wouldn't have a word with me if I repeated some of it verbatim on television. So we are continuing to follow breaking news out of the Middle East, where the United States launched major retaliatory strikes on 85 Iranian-backed targets across seven locations in Iraq and Syria on Friday night. And President Biden said on Friday that the U.S. military response will continue at times and places of our choosing, meaning there will be more. This response, of course, follows the deadly drone attack in Jordan that was carried out by Iranian-backed militant groups just one week ago. It killed three American soldiers shown there. That marked the first time U.S. troops were killed by enemy fire since the beginning of the Israel-Hamas war. Now, we knew a response to this attack was coming. President Biden vowed to respond moments after that initial drone strike a week ago. And over the course of the last week, there have undoubtedly been daily meetings in the Situation Room and in the White House to discuss the options for a response. I've been there for moments like this. And these meetings typically start at lower levels, below the president, to consider and agree on a range of options to propose back to him. The Defense Department is, of course, in the lead. The president would then typically presented with these options, including from the lowest response to the most aggressive response. And these would include analysis about the impact, about the day after this campaign finishes. Because, and this is why it's important, Unlike the warmongering rhetoric of some members of Congress done safely in the halls of Congress and on Twitter, when you're in the Situation Room or in the Pentagon, you're not thinking about what is going to sound the most aggressive on Twitter, what's going to be retweeted the most. You're thinking about how any action will further your military and diplomatic objectives. That's the whole point. In this case, those objectives were to send a clear message from the commander in chief that he will not stand by as his people are targeted and killed. But the objective is also, the larger objective in some ways, is also to de-escalate by degrading the capabilities of these groups. Because one of the only ways to reduce the attacks from these groups is to reduce their capacity to attack. And we don't know yet what Iran will do in response. We don't know yet. 
Reports suggest they are not seeking a war with the United States, a war that they would lose militarily. But now that this retaliation from the United States has officially begun, there are a lot of big questions that remain. How will it end? Can the U.S. effectively degrade the capabilities of these groups without sparking a larger conflict? And how does any of, the impact, any of this impact the diplomatic efforts underway right now to bring about a ceasefire in Gaza? One of the people who is considering all of these questions and many more right now is National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. He's briefing the president on these matters. He's in every single conversation and meeting about what is happening right now. And he's already planning for what comes next. Joining me now is National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Uh, hi, Jake. Uh, good morning. So let me start here. The, the strikes, of course, good definitely sent a clear message. There's no question about that. But as we look to the next stage, and clearly there is a next stage, as you've all indicated, what can we expect? I know you're not going to outline it in detail, but are you are we looking at the possibility of cyber attacks? Are we looking at the targeting of individual leaders? Are those things on the table at this point? Well, Jen, it's a, it's a good question. And it's a fair question, but uh, unfortunately, it's not one I can answer uh, sitting here on television today because, you know, obviously we don't want to telegraph uh, the next steps in our response, some of which will be seen, some may be unseen. But President Biden was clear that uh, what you saw on Friday night in the strikes in Iraq and Syria was the beginning, not the end of our response. So there will be more steps in the coming days. I just unfortunately can't lay out what those might be. We'll be, of course, watching closely. Well, let's talk about the response, because some have read the statement from a week ago by the group the Pentagon believes is responsible for the attack in Jordan as an indication that Iran does not want to escalate. There's also, of course, been the statements in recent days by the foreign minister, which could be directed at a domestic audience in Iran, no question. But how do you read their public communications? Does it send to a message to you that they want to de-escalate, or what is your assessment? Uh, look, uh, our assessment is that actions are going to be important here, not words. Uh, Iran has a long history of saying one thing and then doing another. So we're going to watch for actions in the days and weeks ahead. And that will determine our response rather than anything that they try to publicly signal. For his part, President Biden has been clear. If you come at the United States, we'll respond. And that's what we did on Friday night. But he's also been clear that we are not looking for a wider war. We are not looking to escalate this conflict. Uh, and he has sent that message publicly through through his remarks. And um, we have reinforced that. How Tehran chooses to proceed from here, obviously, uh, will be up to them. But we will watch that carefully. And, and we're prepared to deal with whatever comes next. You know better than anyone, there are uh, means of communicating with the Iranians, and there's been fits and starts of that over the course of the last uh, several years. Are, is there an open line of communication through any channels right now with Iran to try to de-escalate? We have had channels of communication over the past few months. Uh, they are not the most direct and straightforward in the world, but they do work. Uh, but in the last few days, our message to Iran has come through our actions, not through those channels. Are they through third party countries or through the U.N. or directly through U.S. officials and Iranian officials? Uh, again, it's a very good question and a very fair question. Uh, but again, it's one that uh, I can't elaborate further just to say we have ways of being in touch uh, as necessary and we have to protect those channels. So I, I can't describe them further.
I think it is interesting that you do have those channels, which I think would be surprising to some people watching. Uh, let me ask you, you know, for the about the political side of this, Jake, because for a few days before the U.S. retaliation, the president did telegraph a response was coming. Uh, that wasn't a surprise to anyone. There were three U.S. members of the military lost. But Speaker Mike Johnson was among those who criticized this. He said the public hand-wringing and excessive signaling undercuts our ability to put a decisive end to the barrage of attacks endured over the past few months. Now, I am the first to say frequently that it's easy to launch things over Twitter attacks and also do that from the hallways of Congress. But when he says things like that, do you take that seriously or how do you address that at all? Or do you? Look, the bottom line is that we hit what we wanted to hit when we wanted to hit it, our responses unfolding according to the advice of the military commanders to the president. It's not going on the timeline that Speaker Johnson, uh, you know, is going to put out publicly. And this idea that somehow striking on Friday as opposed to Wednesday as opposed to Thursday makes any strategic difference uh, has no basis in reality. So we think that, yes, there's some armchair quarterbacking going on because it's political season. But we are also very confident in the steps we have taken in response. They so far, they have been well planned. They have been well executed. And that will continue to be the case. Is it correct then to read that it wouldn't, it didn't change uh, your effectiveness in reaching your targets um, or, uh, you know, what you were trying to do to degrade um, these proxies, uh, cap military capabilities, being telegraphing it, that is? When you uh, select a military target, uh, timing matters. Sometimes it's important to hit it very fast. Sometimes it's important to wait for the right moment. And that right moment can come a few days later, a few weeks later. And so uh, we build a military campaign or a military response around both the question of target and timing. And this target and this timing were selected for operational reasons. Uh, and we did what we wanted to do when we wanted to do it. And of course, Speaker Johnson should understand that, but it's not going to stop him or others uh, from coming out to be critical because they're looking to make some political hay. The other political piece, unfortunately, right now, uh, Jake, is the number of leaders in the Republican Party who have been basically before even the attacks on our troops or, or before the three individuals died, suggesting we should strike, the United States should strike Iran within its borders. Now, reports have suggested that was never on the table. I guess my first question, is that correct? But the second is, why is not, is not striking within the border of Iran, not necessarily in the strategic interest of the United States, even though you have candidates calling for this on the debate stage, lots of people, again, calling for this in the hallway, even before these three U.S. soldiers died? Well, first, Jen, I'll say it's very easy to call for things when you're not in a seat that has to deal with the consequences of actually doing those things. It's, you know, when you're sitting in the situation room, it becomes a lot more real. And that's been true across multiple presidents. I would also point out that the last president, the one before him, the one before him, Republicans and Democrats have dealt with the challenge of Iran-backed militants killing American forces, and none of them have struck inside Iran. So that tells you something. That being said, I think it's really important that, you know, sitting on television, I not be in the business of ruling in or ruling out any kind of uh, specific response. So I'm not going to... Uh, confirm or deny or speak to 
the reports that, that you have indicated or say what's on the table or off the table when it comes to our response. But I would point out that the president has been clear that he wants to respond forcefully, but he also is not looking to start a wider regional war. That's the basic North Star of how he is looking at this approach. Respond forcefully, uh, but seek to avoid entangling the United States in a broad, broader regional conflict. So it sounds like I understand you're not going to get into details here, but it's not off the table. You're not taking options off the table, but obviously it hasn't been a step you have done to date. We have not done it to date, and I'm not putting it on the table either. I want to be very clear. I'm not I'm not going on the table, off the table, ruling in, ruling out. I'm just not going to speak to uh, what the exact uh, target set um, or deliberations will be, because the president deserves the space to be able to make those decisions without me laying them out on television. So I don't want to lead people to think one way or the other on the issue. It's just a matter that I cannot address in the public space at this point. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, I'll let you get back to your day job. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. Coming up on House Republicans do things that are brazenly hypocritical. There are very few members I like talking to about what is really going on. Who Say it straight. More than Congressman Dan Goldman. He joins me in just a few minutes. But before that, Trump's federal election trial has officially been postponed as we wait for a big decision from the appeals court on presidential immunity. I've been wondering all weekend what Andrew Weissman and Neil Katyal think about all of this and what is going on. And they join me now. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Give it to you. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. That. That's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call. Text or chat 988 for free confidential support anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. We're back after a quick break. Okay, we all know there is an enormous cloud hanging over this election. We all feel it. Or you could actually say there are 91 enormous clouds, given the 91 criminal charges facing Donald Trump. And whether or not he's convicted of those charges could actually have a huge impact on the general election. A brand new poll out just this morning from NBC News shows Trump leading Joe Biden by five points. But Biden actually pulls ahead when voters are asked how they vote if Trump is convicted of a crime. So we know it's a big factor. But here's the problem. There's an old saying in this country that the wheels of justice turn slowly, and certainly we respect that, but that it's not exactly ideal when the outcome of these cases could really impact how people feel about their choices this November. So the more we wait, and the longer these big trials and decisions get delayed, the less likely voters will know whether they might be voting for a convicted felon, say. On Friday afternoon, Judge Tanya Chuckin officially dropped Trump's federal election trial off of the March calendar. She says she'll set a new date after the U.S. appeals court makes a decision on Trump's seemingly absurd claim of presidential immunity. 
which we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for. Legal Eagle Andrew Weissman has some thoughts about this delay. He wrote, quote, hey, D.C. Circuit Trump panel, snap a doodle. You are really making the judiciary look bad at this point. Just in case you were also wondering, and I was, snap a doodle is not a legal term that I'm aware of, though it does certainly stick with you. Uh, joining me now is our in-house law firm, finally back together again on a Sunday. Neil Katziel is former acting U.S. Solicitor General. Andrew Weissman is the former general counsel at the FBI and a senior member of special counsel Robert Mueller's team. And he's the co-author of a new book, I don't know how he's had time to write, coming out at the end of the month called The Trump Indictments, The Historic Charging Documents with Commentary. Okay, Andrew, let me start with you. Your snap-a-doodle comment is really how all of us feel. It's stuck with us. Explain what could be taking them so long at this point. Um, So it's worth remembering that in any normal case, this is actually not long at all. Um, But this isn't a normal case. And the circuit did agree to expedite the briefing and oral argument. Mm -hmm. Um, So what's surprising, I think, to many people following this is that they haven't issued their decision sort of in conformity with the speed with which they asked the parties to brief this, remember, over the holidays, over the Christmas mm-hmm. and New Year's holidays. Um, and so, yes, it does take three judges. There are three judges on this panel, not one judge, so that requires some coordination. And the presiding judge, Judge Henderson, may, I don't, we don't know, but may be the holdup here in terms of issuing the decision. I should say, for those people thinking this will preclude accountability in a criminal case, what the result is, is that the Manhattan criminal case, which was scheduled for the end of March, may very well now be the first one. Um, that was a case that was that everyone sort of understood it was going to get put off if the D.C. federal case went mm-hmm. forward on March 4th. But the result of this sort of slowing of the D.C. federal case is that Manhattan, the first case that was indicted, may in fact be the first case to go forward at the end of March. Which is not necessarily ideal politically. Obviously, that's not how the judicial system works. So, Neil, let me go to you, because Andrew raised a really important point here. I mean, that this is normal pacing here. As much as we're all impatient and as much as it's not aligned with the timing, give us a sense of what what else could be going on behind the scenes here in your assessment. And if this is not uh, this, this is not forward, move forward soon, I mean, as I mean, in the coming weeks, Could the federal election trial start in June, July and still be concluded before the election? It could. I mean, my view is that actually the normal schedule for an appeal of this magnitude with these types of public interests at stake would have been that this case is would have been decided by now. So I understand like an ordinary garden variety D.C. circuit appeal. It takes longer, I think, an average disposition time of about six months. But in a case of this gravity, it should be moving more quickly. Take, for example, when the Court of Appeals for the in in the South uh, reversed uh, uh, the judge. Cannon's decision last year to protect Donald Trump. It took them, I think, nine days. And Mm. so to use your phrase, Jen, at the beginning of this show, I am officially now at the freakout stage. Um, I've resisted (laughs) that for a long time, but we are now- You don't typically freak out, so that's important. Right. 
Yeah, no, I think we're now at the point, to use a different legal phrase, justice delayed is justice denied. I mean, I can't imagine a more compelling need for speed than the idea that American citizens deserve to know before the election whether a candidate for office is a felon and an insurrectionist. And it's even more galling to me because this is an easy case. There is no responsible constitutional scholar who thinks Donald Trump is right, that there's an absolute immunity, that a president can go and order Navy SEAL Team 6 to go murder his political opponent and then go and murder the senators who would try him for impeachment. That cannot possibly be right. And Judge Chutkin set a fast schedule here. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea what the Court of Appeals is doing right now. But I can tell you that I'm really worried that it this delay is going to put the trial past June. Uh, it's possible that Trump will try and go to the Supreme Court after he loses on the Court of Appeals. That can take months. This is a real problem. Judge Chuckin, I think it's important to remind people she's just adapting to waiting for this ruling. So she's she's just trying to adapt that. OK, Andrew, because you are also known for keeping all of us calm here and keeping millions of MSNBC viewers calm. What where are you on the freak out a meter here uh, on your end? Neil and I are in violent agreement on this. And to just add a little fuel to the fire, I mean, the whoever whatever judge or judges are slowing this in the D.C. circuit, it is akin to what Judge Cannon is doing in Florida. Um, this is really not looking good for the federal judiciary uh, in terms of their responsibility to the electorate, whether it's Judge Cannon, who has basically issued a pocket veto on that case and has really slow walked that for no apparent reason. Mm -hmm. And you have the same thing going on in the D.C. Circuit. So I agree um, with Neil that there really is no reason for the delay. And if it's coming in a case with that, remember, the legal claim here that Donald Trump is making is absurd. Um, it, it, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where the oral argument, the best argument against him was the judge getting the lawyer for Donald Trump to actually just say what his argument was because it was so preposterous. Um, so the idea that this is going to lead to losing, you know, the war, um, because e even though this decision ultimately will be against Donald Trump, the delay is allowing him to essentially win the battle. And the yeah, everybody... Everybody heard the freak out level here from people who don't freak out. So, Neil, in the minute we have left here, you've argued a lot of cases, to put it mildly, in front of the Supreme Court. The justices are hearing oral arguments about the 14th Amendment case later this week in Colorado. What are you going to be watching for? Well, I think there have been phenomenal friend of the court briefs that are filed that were filed in this case. I don't think the party briefs were that good. But if you make your way through these friend of the court briefs, there is a right legal answer, Jen. And it's one offered by William Baud and Michael Paulson, who are two conservative Federalist Society lawyers. And they say Trump is disqualified. And yes, Trump has many defenses, but they all fail. Like Trump says, he's not an insurrectionist. Uh, yeah, right. He says the president isn't an officer under the United States uh, Constitution, but the text says otherwise, as does the mm. original intent. Mm. He says you need a law of Congress. 
but that would blow a hole through the 14th Amendment and its other clauses like equal protection. He doesn't actually have good legal arguments. And so hopefully the advocates can really bring that about on Thursday and make that point clear and can speak truth to power and say, look, you Supreme Court, you've talked all about the original intent of the founders. Here, the original intent of the founders is very clear. Someone like Donald Trump has no business running for office in our constitutional democracy. Neil Katiel, Andrew okay. Weissman, we'll be talking to you about that and whatever other legal things happen this week. Next Sunday, I appreciate you both joining me as always. Congressman Dan Goldman is standing by. I'm going to ask him about some comments from his Republican colleagues this week that you really just have to hear to believe. We're back after a quick break. Well, this week, a lot of Republican members of Congress seem to basically forget what their job actually is. I mean, their job is supposed to be representing their constituents, to state the obvious, and passing legislation that helps people from their community. But this week on Capitol Hill, we saw a group of lawmakers act more like, let's say, campaign managers for the re-election bid of former President Trump than anything else. checks before the election means that he could be reelected and then we won't extend the 2017. Mailing out checks means he could be reelected. Okay. So that was Republican Senator Chuck Grassley outright dismissing a bipartisan tax bill, one that could lift at least a half a million children out of poverty because it would make President Joe Biden look good. He said it literally. And then there is the situation on the southern border, where the brazen cynicism from Congress also continued this week. Why would we do anything right now to help her with that 33 percent? Do you believe if Joe Biden's approval rating was at 53 percent, we would even be talking about the border? We wouldn't be talking about the southern border. But he has to do something because he's hemorrhaging. He's bleeding. Apropos of nothing, he's holding a cigar in his hand while doing the interview. But that aside... Why would we do anything to help him? That's literally what he said. Why would we do something that might be good for the country if it is bad for Donald Trump? Remember, Republicans pushed for border legislation for years and just months ago demanded President Biden tie funding for Ukraine to the situation at the border. And now they are threatening to tank the very deal that they asked for before they even see the actual text of it. Speaker Mike Johnson not only refused to honor the deal that he proposed, but he says he's now open to passing a clean funding package for Israel, no strings attached, after holding it up since October. Not only that, but House Republicans are even threatening to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas because, according to them, he's not doing enough to fix the problem at the border. When there is a solution that is literally in front of him, they ignore it. They ignore it. Why? Because Donald Trump doesn't want a solution. He wants the problem. Because without the problem, he wouldn't have much left to run on. Joining me now is Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman of New York. So, Congressman, I mean, those comments from Troy Nels and from Chuck Grassley, there, there, there are many others like them, but they kind of take my breath away. Break down for us exactly what's going on here and what do you attribute it to? 
Well, what's going on is that the Republicans have used the border as a political cudgel for this entire Congress. And they have passed in the House an extreme, extreme draconian measure uh, that would not actually effectively address the border issues. So now President Biden, Secretary Mayorkas, and a bipartisan group of senators, at urging of the Republicans, who, as you say, linked the Ukraine funding, as well as other uh, international uh, funding for democracies around the world to the border. Now, as they are nearing completion or they have completed a bipartisan deal that by all accounts has many measures that uh, Republicans have been crying for for decades. Now, as it's ready to become law, they want to sabotage it and undermine it. And the only reason is because Donald Trump wants to use the border as a political weapon, as a political cudgel. And he He can't do that if a bipartisan group actually passes legislation to solve the issues at the border. So he would rather have the chaos because it's better for himself than he would the solution, which is better for the American people. Speaker Mike Johnson suggested this morning that he was actually in charge and calling the shots. I find that a little hard to believe. But I also wanted to ask you, because you wrote an op-ed about this, and this really stuck out to me, the hypocrisy here. I mean, while simultaneously they're doing this, while simultaneously trying to impeach the secretary of Homeland Security— for saying, in their words, that he's not doing enough about the border, but they're blocking legislation that would help do something about the border. Uh, You have an op-ed, but give me your take on that. Well, the the cynicism and hypocrisy is startling. Uh, The House Republicans are trying to impeach Secretary Mayorkas for failing to address the problems at the border while he is negotiating with the Senate legislation that is necessary because executive action is insufficient in this situation, he is negotiating legislation that would address the border. So the the House Republicans, rather than engage in those negotiations to try to find bipartisan solutions in divided government, instead are using this sham impeachment that is absolutely baseless, that demeans and debases the impeachment clause of the Constitution, Mm. turns it into a pure political political weapon. And they're doing that while President Biden and Secretary Mayorkas are trying to solve the problems at the border. They are doing this purely for political reasons and political gain. And what it is showing right now is that Republicans, especially in the House, do not want to solve the problems that the American people care about. They just want power and they just want to help Donald Trump. It's such an important point. You have a unique experience with this, that there is an impeachment clause in the Constitution that they are essentially making fun of by what they're doing. It's 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 absurd what they're doing. I want to ask, I just want to turn to the legal side, because you have a great deal of experience in that as well. And the D.C. Circuit, of course, hasn't ruled on Trump's claim of immunity. It, it seems like it's taking a very long time. Um what in your mind is going on there? I mean, that people aren't seeing or we're not aware of. And are you concerned about the delay? 
Well, look, I, I have clerked on an appeals court, and there's a lot of back and forth among the three judges as they are hashing out an opinion. Um, there may be a dissent. It may be uh, trying to find a compromise opinion going back and forth. Uh, we don't know, and it's impossible to read the tea leaves. I think what is very clear is that if that claim of absolute immunity prevails in any way, shape, or form, it would completely eviscerate the fundamental notions of the rule of law that no one is above the law. And that was brought out very clearly by one of the judges in the oral arguments. I would expect the opinion will deny the president's request. I will expect it to go to the Supreme Court, and we will have a ruling on it by June at the latest. You think June at the latest. I was going to ask you, I mean, it, it's now off the calendar for March. If it starts in June, could it be done before the election? Will voters be able to know if they're voting for a convicted felon or not? Yes, it, it should be done based on what I view to be uh, Judge Chutkin's uh, very, you know, rigid and stern views of the schedule and, and uh, the control that she has over her courtroom. So even if there's an opinion by the Supreme Court in June, uh, this trial could start in July and it would be over by the end of the summer. It's a lot, a lot of work for the courts. Um, thank you so much joining, for joining me this afternoon, Congressman Dan Goldman. Always appreciate speaking with you. Thank you, Jen. So after a quick break, we're going to bring it, we're going to dig into, I should say, some of the things Joe Biden has been saying about Donald Trump behind closed doors that don't necessarily surprise me, but I can't repeat them on television. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Television. We'll talk about all of that when we come back. Okay, there are a couple things that happened this week that may have gotten old Democrats a little excited. I mean, I'm not talking over the moon, doing black flips excited, but definitely a little excited. First was a report from Politico revealing some of the things Joe Biden calls Donald Trump behind closed doors. We're going to put it up on the screen. None of it surprised me, really, but we're a family show, so we're not going to say any of it. But you get the idea from what you see there. I'm not condoning it, of course, but... There were some definitely some definitely some Democrats out there who may have felt seen by it. And then last night in South Carolina, a resounding victory for the president in the first official primary contest on the Democratic side. Not unexpected necessarily, but 96 percent is pretty good on any test. It's much higher than what the polls were predicting under any circumstances. Joining me now is my friend Jen Palmieri. She's the former communications director for President Obama, now the host of the MSNBC podcast, which is excellent, How to Win 
2024. So, Paul, let's start with the primary last night, because the, yeah. the president did do far better than what the polls were predicting in terms of the percentage of the vote he got. What did you make of the turnout numbers and other things that you've yeah. looked at in terms of the data from last night? So, the, so it was a fraction of how many people voted in 2020, but that's to be expected. But it was still in the you know high tens of thousands of, of, of people who voted. Interestingly, for the for the turnout operation, it was this, the voters that turned out in 24, a uh, much higher percentage black voters. It's like 76 percent, I think, of the voters that turned out yesterday uh, were black voters. In 2020, that number was around 56 percent. So mm-hmm. in terms of you know, it, for both New Hampshire and South Carolina, you know, they're small tests, but they're tests of, the, of enthusiasm and they're tests of the Biden turnout operation and just how they're dealing with mechanics. And, you know, and I mean, we talked about this off camera, but what they pulled off in New Hampshire is a big deal to get people to write in Joe Biden after after he dissed New Hampshire and walked away from mm-hmm. New Hampshire. It was a big deal. It's a hard thing. And then last night, same deal in South Carolina. There's not a real reason to have to turn out. It's not a competitive primary, but a lot of black voters did. And that shows enthusiasm and support for, for Biden. So that both, you- both states are good contests. And then on Tuesday, we have Nevada, too. So that's another good uh, test of, um, you know, labor is a big deal in Nevada. Um, Hispanic votes mm-hmm. big deal in Nevada. And so we'll learn more there, too. Yeah. And all of it, as you alluded to, is sort of exercising the organizational muscle, yeah. which is which is a good thing. So I, I alluded to this at the top, but there were some things that President Biden reportedly <laughs> said. I have no doubt about this, by the way, behind closed doors about Trump. What's important to me about the reporting to point out, which doesn't always talked about, is his frustration was about how Trump is so self-involved and doesn't care about the American yeah. people. That's why he used those words that I won't use on TV because my mom will be mad. But what did you make of that? And and what do you think Democrats? How do you think Democrats read that out there? Who want a little pizzazz? Both of our New England mothers would be very upset, Saki. <laughs> we will not <laughs> use that kind say, of we'll language. We'll say sugar. Just say sugar. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, this is we we both know Joe Biden. We know fundamentally he's one of the most decent people you know, right? And I think that is what really bothers him about Trump is the way Trump treats. People and the way he talks about, you know, called people who served in the military losers and suckers, and you know, said, you know, said, don't show disabled veterans. Nobody wants to see that, and particularly, you know, for the Bidens, uh, with their, you know, having lost a son that served in the military, it's such a big deal. And I do think it shows. But unlike Trump, Biden doesn't say this out loud in public. <laughs> so, that, you know, and I think that, it does sort of difference. Key difference. Yeah, that's a big difference. I will point out. Now, before I let you go, I did want to ask you, there's a new poll, of course, out um, by NBC. There's lots to dig into here, and we could dig into more if we had more time. But it does show Biden trailing Trump by five points. But when voters are asked if Trump is convicted of a felony, he pulls ahead by two points. Obviously, the Biden campaign can't control convictions. He's not talking about it purposefully. Is there anything in there that you think the Biden campaign could work with that's telling about those numbers? Well, I think what the, the yeah on the conviction. I think that 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 matters. That means the message around democracy. That means the message around protecting elections, protecting the republic. That sort of that even if even if President Biden's not going to talk about the court cases, that is at the the court cases are at the root of that argument about how we need to protect democracy. And so I think you can still even as as the trials are going on. I mean, I heard what Neil and and Andrew had to say about it all. 
you can be making this argument alongside the campaign uh, without getting into the having to get into the nuts and bolts of the court cases. So that that suggests that even as Trump continues to perform better than Biden in the economy, which is a which is a whole other frustrating thing for the Biden team to deal with. And I think those numbers will get better, will get better. They know that this issue is 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 something that they can mine for independent voters, maybe moderate Republicans that uh, are open to voting for him in 24. Before I let you go back to your life and curl up on that cozy looking chair behind you. <laughs> Welcome to you my th- living room, Saki. It's so I cozy. Love it. Do you think that Nikki Haley is going to be in through South Carolina at this point? It's a hard choice for them, I guess. You know, she says, I noticed what her metric, have you noticed her new metric? Her new metric is as long as we'll, we continue to close the gap, which I think means perform better than polling suggests. Uh, she could probably pull that off in South Carolina. Um, Sorry, that was my oven. <laughs> um, bring everyone <laughs> into okay. my world a little. Um, so this long, I suspect she'll probably stay in at least till Super Tuesday so she can accrue delegates. And, you know, if the court cases are happening around the time of the convention, which it sounds like they might be the Republican convention, maybe there's a reason for her, you know, maybe the rapture will come, as everyone says, and there's a reason for her to try to, uh, to, 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 you know, take, contest the convention and she has some delegates. So I think she probably will. Also, we both know it's real hard to quit. You know, it's hard yeah. for these presidential candidates to do that. Um, so I think we will see her. It's a very important point. Very hard to kiss goodbye, at least for the moment, to the dream. Jennifer Palmieri, thank you as always. <laughs> yeah. Go get your oven, curl up on that chair. Um, coming up next, we're going to dig into the RNC's cash problems. There's a lot of reporting about it this weekend. And whether it's indicative of bigger problems within the Republican Party and the cash flow, I think so. And I'll explain that next, and I'll be right back. So this week, we learned that the governing body for the Republican Party, which is the Republican National Committee, only has $8 million cash on hand. Now, that's important and significant because it's the worst cash crunch it's faced in a decade. According to the news site Puck, the money is not coming in as quickly as it's bleeding out, which is, of course, a big problem. So what exactly has the RNCs been spending all this money on? A big hint actually came from an RNC spokeswoman who bragged late last month that the RNC has spent millions of dollars to engage in 76 election integrity lawsuits in 22 states. And by election integrity lawsuits, what they basically mean is that the party is spending a lot of money defending the big lie, fighting to limit access, essentially, to the ballot box. Perhaps no surprise coming from the party of Trump. But what is pretty ironic is that at the very same time, the RNC is also spending big on an early vote initiative called Bank Your Vote, a program to get Republicans to commit to voting early in all 50 states and six territories. A good thing, participating in democracy. But let's just pause on all of this for a second, their priorities, because these two spending priorities are kind of a study in contradictions. I mean, the RNC's election integrity lawsuits are expensive legal gamuts, which foster distrust in early voting. And in the system, we are all trusting on to count our votes. Why would you go out and participate in a process that someone is telling you over and over again is rigged? Well, the RNC's Bank Your Vote initiative is essentially designed to do the opposite. It's meant to engage Republicans in the early voting process and to trust that their vote will be counted. Overall, a good thing. 
Even more ironic, though, and definitely quite a headache for Ronna McDaniel, I feel a little bad for her, is that while the RNC attempts to capitalize on early voting through this bank your vote program, the leader of the Republican Party, you know the one, won't stop telling Republicans to distrust the system. Here he is just last month, after he won the Iowa primary, railing against exactly what the RNC claims they're trying to fix. We're going to straighten out our elections. We're going to do a lot of great things. We're going to try and go to paper ballots as soon as possible. Voter ID. One day, one day elections. You know, we have these elections that last for 62 days. And if you need some more time, take as much time as you want. And so many bad things happen. We have to get rid of mail-in ballots because once you have mail-in ballots, you have crooked elections. So again, the RNC is spending millions of dollars on a bank your vote early vote program. The leader of the party is saying, don't trust the process. It's not legitimate. Got it. But the seemingly spending, seemingly contradictory spending priorities aren't the RNC's only problem, it turns out. Again, I feel a little bad for them. According to Puck, the RNC's money problems have been mounting in part because of lackluster enthusiasm for small and large donors alike. But do you know where Republican small donors haven't stopped sending their money? You guessed it, Donald Trump's presidential campaign. In fact, Trump has raised most of his campaign funds from small dollar donors per the Washington Post. Not abnormal, he's the candidate in all likelihood. But the problem is, again, that a lot of these dollars aren't even going to the campaign. They're not going to reelect him. They're not advancing the Republican agenda. Because a whopping $55 million of that donor money went towards Donald Trump's legal fees this past year. $55 million. So Trump is not only cannibalizing the RNC's message about the early vote and wasting their money on that program, he's cannibalizing would-be RNC donors for his personal legal bills. But I guess that's what you get when a party is tied to the conspiracies and vindictiveness of a single man. We're coming right back after a quick break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. One quick note before we go, at 9 p.m. Eastern, MSNBC's Tremaine Lee and civil rights attorney Charles Coleman Jr. will host Black Men in America, The Road to 2024. We'll be back here tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. That, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.